Revelation chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. He had a little book open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. When he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. And when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered, and do not write them. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servants prophets. Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go take the little book which is open in the hands of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. So I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. And he said to me, Take and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. And he said to me, You must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. We come now to Revelation chapter 10. It's one of the shortest chapters in Revelation. Chapter 15 is shorter, but other than that, this and chapter 4 are the shortest ones. And just to get us thinking along the right lines, we say again that Revelation is not a straight line from beginning to end in chronological sequence. That's one of the mistakes I think that people bring when they look at Revelation and they're confused and when they see things more than once. Well, that's That's the point. We actually see things more than once here. These grand themes, we're not uh, so much concerned about the details because I don't think the book itself is concerned with the details of things. It's concerned with the grand uh, grand themes, though explained uh, from different perspectives and with different specific elements that it's driving home. Well, once again, we've come almost to the end. We have brought... Uh, We've heard the sixth, but not the last, of these seven trumpets. And just like it was after the case, after the sixth seal in chapter 6, there was an interlude in chapter 7, so there's an interlude here. And if we think back to what the nature of that interlude was in chapter 7, if we came to the end of the six seals, and then what do we have in that? Well, we have the sealing of the 144,000. We have the sealing of all the elect of God, those who are going to be brought to salvation. It's the great work of Christ and his church throughout the age until the very end. The sealing of all those who are coming to faith. And just like that, just like that, we have here the work of the church. 
the work of the church to declare the mysteries of God. Now, as usual, there's some particular typological language that's either explained in other parts of Revelation or else we find it, it the source is from parts of the Old Testament, particularly here the prophecy in Daniel. And if you were to go back to Daniel, you'd see all sorts of things that look very familiar here. And also the commissioning, I think particularly so, the commissioning of the prophet Ezekiel in the first few chapters of Ezekiel, in chapters 2 and 3 particularly. But again, the point is not minutia in words. This is designed to be a clear revelation for those who have eyes to see. And the main character in this chapter is this mighty angel. And as you look, as we've read this this brief chapter, for those familiar with the description of Christ in chapter 1 of Revelation, I think we should be able to see who this is. This is none other than Christ himself. And it is Christ particularly as one having authority and as one having an open book in his hand. You see, again, the idea is we may have the same characters over and over again, but we're looking at different aspects of their particular, of particularly of Christ attributes. This whole book is a revelation of Jesus Christ. Well, why don't we just stop with two words then? Jesus Christ, and that's the end. Well, because there's something about Christ. It's his attributes and his, his works, and it's the things that he would have us to do, and that's what the rest of the book is about. Well, there's Christ, and then there's also John, who I think also represents those who are called to declare God's word, and thereby the church as a whole. John is given a little book to digest and to declare. And this little book contains the mystery of God or a portion thereof. Now, we're going to look at what that might be. But just briefly, just to say where we're going, I think we're going to find that it is a subset of that large scroll, the scroll that is written on both sides, that is in the hands of Christ, that contains the whole work of redemption, the whole plan from beginning to end of all the works of God, This little scroll is a subset of that that is given to the church to declare. Now, it is impossible for any man to conceive, let alone accomplish the things that Christ has in his plan. A plan of redemption, something that no one would have even guessed how it was going to happen, much less could any man have possibly accomplished the impossible task of bringing people to salvation, of washing them from their sins, of living a perfect holy life and dying a sacrificial death on our behalf. Absolutely impossible. And moreover, it is in the things that it declares, things that would not occur to us, things that don't make sense to us. That's incidentally why the, one of the many reasons why people turn away, why the church turns away, why there are other things that it goes to, because these things simply do not make sense on their own. But for that reason, it is rightly called a mystery. Not because it hasn't been told to us, not because we don't know anything about it, but because these things involve an element of mystery. What we are given to do, however, is to declare that mystery. That is what is given to John as he is given this book, told to eat it and then to declare it. He must prophesy to many places. 
Well, church history, I think, has been one long story of the church turning away from the business it has been given to something else. Sadly, we have to look back and say that the church has not stuck to the mission that it has been given. It has found all sorts of other good things to do in this life. It has found all sorts of other messages to proclaim. But it has all too often turned away from the simple business of declaring the mysteries of God. Either it has tried to turn those mysteries of God into things that are rational and things that make sense to the world, or else it has turned entirely to some other business that has nothing to do with declaring anything at all, but of a social gospel, but of making things better in this world. Well, you know, Revelation is itself a story of churches on the edge. As we look at those seven churches at the beginning of this book, we see these churches that are persecuted, these churches that are tempted to move to something else, churches that are already in the process of compromise. And sadly, we know that that process was not to end. Well, it is for, to these churches that Christ is making it crystal clear what their mission is to do. And John, as he represents all those who are given this task, and as he represents the church as a whole, their job is to take the book that God has given and to declare it. As simple as that. The business of the church is to declare the mysteries of God. Well, these three points. First, the mighty angel in the little book. Second, the mystery of God. And third, you must prophesy. Our first point is the mighty angel and the little book. As we read in the first two uh, verses, I saw yet uh, still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. He had a little book open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. Well, who is the mighty angel? We see that he is clothed with cloud. Now, if you were to take a look at God's word, you would find in various places some element of this, someone who is clothed with cloud, and in every case we'd see that it is the Lord God Almighty. And if you were to look through to other places where we have the rainbow, well, even in the institution of the rainbow, uh, after the days of, of Noah, we see that God declares that this is his rainbow. He owns it. But moreover, the only one who ever has any... Uh, rainbow as an element of his glory, of an element of his person, is what we have even in Revelation itself. In Revelation 4.2, Behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne. There's only one who is clothed with a rainbow, and that is the Lord God. We see also he has a face like the sun. That's a description of Christ in Revelation chapter 1, verse 16. His countenance was like the sun shining in its strength, a picture of his perfect glory, a picture of his holiness, and his feet like pillars of fire. Well, again, like Revelation chapter 1, his feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. So let's not belabor the point. The mighty angel is Jesus Christ himself, shining in his holiness and in his power and his perfections. Now, what does he have in his hand? Well, it's a, a little scroll, a book. We sometimes say things like, this is merely symbolic. And we mean by that that it's an empty symbol. 
Maybe a politician is making some sort of symbolic gesture, uh, and, and we say that it's, it's merely symbolic because there's no connection between this symbol and any reality. Well, it's not always like that, and particularly it is not like that with God. God does not make use of empty symbols. He certainly makes use of symbols and types, but they're not empty. They're meaningful ones. And we have to think, what is the symbolic? What is the purpose? What, what might we derive? All the rest of this description of the mighty angel, these things have their significance, pointing to various attributes of, of God. What is the significance that he has in his hand an open book? I think there is significance. I think that the very first words of the Gospel of John says, in the beginning was the word. That's not without its signification. That the very title, the very name by which we know the second person of the Godhead is the word. And then throughout the Gospel of John, we find that Jesus is busy preaching and teaching the word. He has been given a word by his Father, and he gives his, his words to these disciples in John seventeen fourteen, I have given them your word. That's the thing that he's been given to give, and so he gives it. It is not an empty symbol that he has an open book in his hands. We'll speak more of that later. And moreover, it is a little book. Now we see that it's a little different than the other. It's a little scroll or book as opposed to the other scroll or book that we have previously seen in Revelation. Now it seems to mean... Now, John um, knows what he's doing. The Holy Spirit knows what he's writing. So it's not without signification that these words are different. But it would seem to me that this little book must be a subset of the bigger open book. You, you see, we have this scroll that's written on the inside and the outside. And we, we said previously how it contains everything that God is ever going to do. The whole plan of salvation from beginning to end. Who all that he's going to save, how he's going to save them, and everything else about uh, human history is it's down there. Now the next question I would say is, do you, are you and I, are we in possession of this scroll? Can we just open our Bibles and flip to the fact that next week one of our guests is going to come to saving faith? No. Can we flip to how long we've got left on this life? Can we, we find out that we've got five years or ten years left and, and how it is that the Lord brings us home? No. Sometimes we might wish that we have that knowledge, but it's not given to us. Now, it's written in that scroll. God himself knows perfectly all these things, but that has not been given. The open book that has been given to the church is a subset of that larger, but it doesn't contain it all. And I think, for, for instance, that is one reason why we have this otherwise strange section here. You, you have this uh, in verse 4, When the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered, and do not write them. We're reminded that at the very least, we know that this open book by which John is going to declare does not contain what the seven thunders uttered. There are some things that have not been given to us to know. And so that is a matter for our humility, a reminder that we have not been given everything, but we've been given enough. It may not contain everything, this little book. It may not contain everything that's ever going to happen, but it contains what is necessary for salvation.
And that is what has been given to the church. Now, that's the little book. What about, we, we, we spoke about the identity of the angel. We spoke about what this little book might be. What about the angel that is particularly, what is he doing? Well, we find that he's standing. He's got one foot on the sea, and he's got another foot on the land. And the sea and the land, even if we were to have just a globe, you'd see, well, that's a picture of the whole earth. It's, and in the Bible, when someone has put their foot on something or someone, it means that they have authority over them. And when Christ has his feet on the earth, on the sea and on the land, picturing the whole earth, that means he has all authority on earth. And that reminds us of the Great Commission. It reminds us of the basis of the Great Commission. You see, we haven't been given a job with no authority behind it. Before we're ever given the mission of the church, in Matthew twenty-eight eighteen, Jesus says this, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And we must not forget about that when we consider what the mission of the church might be. We must never forget that we come on the basis of Christ having authority on this earth. He has put his foot on the land. He has put his foot on the sea over the whole earth. And it's on that basis then that he has an open book and a job for the church to perform. Go therefore on that basis. Go make disciples of all the nations. Why? Because I have authority over them. And I can give you this job to do and I know that you'll be able to do it. Christ's universal authority is a basis by which he then issues the church and particularly her spokesman, the mission. Well, more on that on the third point. But let's just sum up what we have here in the first. There is a mighty angel who has all authority and he has in his hand an open book for the church. Now, what's the message in that book? Well, that's the second point. It's the mystery of God. It says in verse 7, But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servants the prophets. Now, of course, this is speaking about the end of the world. It's good to be reminded one more time that this current world will certainly end when God is finished with it, when the purposes that God has for this current world are finished, when all the elect are sealed, all those 144,000 which stand for all the elect people of God, when they have come to saving faith, that's the end of the purpose of this current world. But the end is not really the emphasis here. The emphasis is on the mystery of God. And we might ask, what is this mystery of God? You know, thankfully again, and we said this is a clear revelation. In fact, the answer to this question comes in far more prosaic parts of Scripture. You don't find them in Isaiah or Ezekiel or Daniel. You find, in, in this case, you'd have to look at Matthew. In Matthew 13, verse 10. And disciples came and said to him, why do you speak in parables? Good question. Lord, I, th- I thought you were, you were giving us a clear message. What on earth is the point of speaking in parables? He answered and said to him, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. So you see, we know that Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And now he speaks to this as being the mysteries, the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. 
And do you see how these things then relate? You see, the thing that is mysterious about this, beyond the fact that the nature of the gospel is something that's difficult to conceive, another part that's mysterious about it is that though it be declared, though the words be spoken to everyone on earth, were that the case, not everyone would receive it. Only some, those who have been given the power and the ability and the faith by the Lord himself would actually understand these things. But to others, it would remain forever mysterious. It would remain dark and clouded. And that is part of God's plan. Jesus came preaching the gospel. and He explained these spiritual things in parables. But it was not given for everyone to understand these mysteries. Now, just again, to speak very plainly, what is the mystery of God? What are the mysteries of God? Well, it's the gospel itself. It's just synonymous with the gospel in its fullest sense. These are the things that we say when we speak of the mysteries of God. More specifically, we have the statement in Romans 16. Now to him, this is another, by the way, a good benediction. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began but now has been made manifest by the prophetic scriptures, has been known to all nations. There is a mystery. That mystery has to do with the gospel that has now been made manifest in scripture. This mystery is how God would save his people, because who could guess how that was going to happen? How could you possibly find a way for dirty, rotten sinners like you and I, alienated from God, under the wrath of a holy God, brought into living fellowship, brought into union with Christ, made to be the bride of Christ, enabled to live forever and ever in heaven with him. How is that going to happen? It's a mystery until it's been revealed. Or very simply, we have it in Ephesians 6.19. And for me, the utterance, that utterance, he's asking for prayer. This is his prayer request. Pray for me, Ephesians. For me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. And here we come then to that mission of the church, right? The mighty angel, who has all authority, has in his hand a little book, and he's giving it to John as a representative of the church. And the contents of that, the mystery of God. Now we know that one day the mystery of God is going to be finished. And that this great work of salvation that has been going on since the beginning, all the people are going to be brought in. And then the only thing that remains is destruction. But for the time being, these mysteries are being proclaimed. Crucial part of the work, of course, has been done. Christ came, Christ suffered, he died for our sins, and he rose the third day. But all of God's people have not yet come to their salvation. And so there's still an outworking. That's still a mystery, isn't it, too? We still don't know how that's going to happen. You know, so far, we, have, we, we love the Puritans, and we have so much uh, respect for everything they did. But if, if one thing that I think they missed it maybe a little bit was making this kind of flowchart on how someone comes to Christ. It's sort of this, then that, then that, then that, and boom, you're a Christian. Uh, a, a, a pure kind of taxonomy of, of how that happens. The wonderful thing is, I don't think that I've ever seen it happen the same way twice. People come to saving faith in all sorts of ways. And I think that's part of the beauty of the mystery. We don't know who's going to come next. And we don't know how that's going to happen. 
It's part of the mystery of God that is still yet to be revealed as this is outworked. What has been given to us is the main part of that mystery, the content of the gospel that we declare to the world. Thirdly and finally, you must prophesy. So we read it starting in verse 8. The voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go, take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. So I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. He said to me, Take it and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and it was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I'd eaten it, my stomach became bitter. And he said to me, You must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. Amazing thing, isn't it? Rather bold. You wonder how John summoned up the courage to walk up to the mighty angel, Jesus Christ, and say, Give me the book. Well, he could do that because he was told by the Father to do that. Told by the voice in heaven. He was told, Go do that. And it's a reminder then of how God's people must be insistent in this way. We demand that we have access to this book because it's been given to us by God himself. Now, I mentioned that this part has everything to do with Ezekiel's commissioning. And again, if we were to look at Ezekiel, well, we would see this commissioning by God. It says, Son of man, hear what I say to you. Do not be rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. There's a rebellious house of Israel. They don't want to listen. But he says, open your mouth. Eat this which I give to you. And when I looked, there was a hand stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was on it. And he spread it before me, and there was writing on the inside and the outside, and written on it were lamentations and mourning and woe. And moving into the beginning of, our, of chapter 3. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, eat what you find. Eat this scroll, and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he caused me to eat that scroll. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly and fill your stomach with this scroll that I give you. So I ate, and it was in my mouth like honey and sweetness. Now, again, I don't think we have to be rocket scientists to capture what's going on here. The people of Israel were rebellious, and they did not want to listen to God's word. But God is saying to his ordained servant, this is the message. You may not like this message. In fact, it contains lamentations and mourning and woe. And later on in Ezekiel, we find how, how, how sad he is to have to declare these things. And likewise with Jeremiah, these things were not palatable. But these were the things that he demands that his prophet understand and declare. There are aspects of the message today that are bitter. Aspects of the message for John that had to be bitter. Because what is he saying in his book? What is he saying in his letters? He's not saying, Stop! Trying to live a godly life. Stop declaring the word of God. You're being persecuted. Don't you see? It's going to kill you. Don't you see how you've inconvenienced your life in this way? God would never want you to have to live that way. Just let it go. Give in to what the world is doing. No, he's not saying that at all. He's saying to these people that he loves, these people that he's given his life to serve, he's saying, you keep right on. In this word doing the things that God has called you to do, knowing full well that it might cause their death. 
knowing full well that it was certainly going to cause their discomfort and their persecution. I don't think that John took much pleasure in that. And likewise, when he is declaring the destruction of the world around, I don't know that he took much pleasure in that. But these are the things that was going to, they were going to turn his stomach bitter. These were the things that he was given by God to declare. Now, John given, being given a message, well, that's something that we've already seen. You see, there is this chain of transmission from father to son, for instance. We've already seen. You know, that big scroll we were talking about, it wasn't initially in the hands of the son. It wasn't in the, in the hands of Jesus Christ. It was first, it says, in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures. In verse, uh, this is Revelation 5, uh, verse 7. He came and he took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. There's one who sits upon the throne representing the father. That's a, a bit complex. But we, we, we spoke about it uh, another time. But there's one sitting on the, the throne. And in his right hand, he has this scroll. And the son takes it out of his hand. So it's from father to son. That's exactly what it says in John twelve fifty. Whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. So Christ, all of his words come directly from the Father. He's no freelancer. He's taking what the Father has given and he's declaring that. And then the Son then gives that to the church. And that's what's happening here. He's taking a subset of that scroll and he's putting it into the hands of John on behalf of the whole church. And he says that you must prophesy again. The work, of course, is not done. This book of Revelation wasn't done yet. He's still got to write the rest of it. His course on this earth wasn't done. He's still got to prophesy again. He's still got to be a faithful witness. That's why he was on Patmos in the first place. Because he was being obedient. But his work was not yet done. And likewise, the work of the church is not yet done. Yet, we must prophesy again. Now, whether they listen or not, that's ultimately not our business. We hope that they will, but we know that many will not. The business of the church is simply to faithfully declare what we have been given, both the palatable and the unpalatable parts, the parts that are sweet and also the parts that are bitter. That's the business of the church. We must prophesy again of these things, the things that we've been given. So to move directly then to application, directly to it. Firstly, the business of the church is to preach the mystery. We remind ourselves again of the content of the Great Commission. We saw the basis of the content or the basis of this commission, which was the authority of Christ, the content in Matthew twenty eight is go there go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. A reminder that this is our work until the end of the age. As we saw in Revelation chapter 7, and now we're seeing in Revelation chapter 10, this is the work until the end of the age. It is to declare these things to, to everyone. Now we have seen that the message contains many elements that aren't going to be received well. And believe me, we are not the first ones to ever notice that little, that little detail. It didn't just suddenly come in our time that some of these things a culture does not respond well to. That is not something new. 
Jeremiah's culture didn't respond very well to the message. Christ's culture did not respond very well to the message. John's culture did not respond very well to the, the message. And it never has been and it never will be. That's why Paul in Ephesians 6.19, again, he's asking for prayer. Previously, we were talking just in general terms of his, of his requesting for prayer. But again, just think about the specifics here. That for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Well, John knows about the cost. He's on Patmos because he's been persecuted for being faithful, for opening his mouth to declare these things. Paul knows what it's like too. He's an ambassador in chains. He's in jail because he has been faithful to declare these things. And he says... I don't know if I can do it again. Pray for me that I would open my mouth to speak these things because I know that's what I've been called to do. This mission is very clear. We need to understand the mission that has been given to the church is very clear, but it's very delicate. It's very delicate because it's a hard thing to do. It's delicate because the world is against it. The world, the flesh, and the devil are all conspiring against the church actually carrying out its mission. The prophets of God, I've mentioned, they're not always 100% comfortable with what they were to proclaim. Like Jeremiah said, O oh Lord, you induced me and I was persuaded. You were stronger than me and, I, and prevailed. Everyone mocks me. When I spoke, I cried out. I shouted violence and plunder because the word of the Lord was made to me a reproach and a derision daily. And I said, I will, make, I will not make mention of him, nor speak any more in his name. You see how he, the place he's come. Look, they're making fun of me. I'm going to stop doing this. I've had enough. But what it says is, but his word was in my heart like a burning fire. It shut up in my bones, and I was weary of holding it back, and I could not. It's no fun declaring the unpalatable parts of the word of God. Thankfully, God is with us to make us able to do them. Now, of course, we have been focusing on the ordained messengers, but we have to understand something else. We're all in this together. Okay, first of all, because let's imagine if there's a the whole scroll that is in the hands of, the, of, of Christ, and he gives a subset of that to the church to declare, particularly to the ordained messengers to declare. Yet I would say by that principle there is a subset that is given to us all. Maybe we have not all been ordained and set aside to declare the whole mysteries in every uh, in season and out of season as those who, that's their particular job to do that as elders have been given. In fact there's another uh, a whole uh, office uh, that of deacons created in order that they may give their whole lives to this this work. So maybe you don't have that whole. But of course we all have been given a subset of that. As we are to be faithful witnesses in the vocations that we've been given. As we are also to open our mouth in various situations to speak the truth of the gospel. And moreover, we're in it together in a different way. And that is because it is not just the preacher. It never is. It is also the audience. And I've seen that many, many times. The audience... The people of God are either receptive or they're not. And you can be unreceptive in lots of different ways. 
And the net effect of it is that you will eventually get a preacher that you want to hear one way or another. Whether you go to a different church and hear a preacher that, you, that speaks more palatable things, or whether you get rid of the preacher and you get one more to your taste, you'll eventually get a preacher you want to hear. So we are in this together. The mission of the church is to declare the mysteries of God, some of which are not all that palatable. And the only way for that, that mystery, that, or that mission to carry on another week, another month, is for you to say, give me that book. I want that book. I want to hear it. It may not be comfortable, but I want to hear those things that God has given for you to declare. Secondly, I'd say we need to be people of the book. I mentioned that it wasn't just a mere empty symbol that Jesus Christ has in his hand, this open book. You have a God who is a God of the book. You have a Savior whose name is the Word. And this scripture, this word, is all about words. It's all about proclaiming. It's all about hearing. How many times have we heard that in Revelation already? And in this brief chapter, we hear so much about proclaiming and so much about hearing. That's what it's all about. That's why we must be people of the book. We must know the contents of the scripture. It should not surprise us that the world seems to be conspiring against these things. It shouldn't surprise us that the world has made all kinds of contrivances and games and amusements and media to keep us away from it. Because, of course, that's what you would do if you were an enemy of these things. Well, let the world amuse themselves in these things. But you, Christian, you be a man or a woman of the book. You see, the means of salvation, they come through a book. The means of being sustained, the means of being built up, it comes through a book. Now, I'm not saying at all that it works automatically. It works, of course, through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, without the Holy Spirit, this is just a dead letter. This book, my preaching, everything else like it, it's just a dead letter without the Holy Spirit enlivening it. It works supernaturally. The Spirit does not work without and apart from the Word of God. The Word and the Spirit work together. And if that is the case, then we must be people of the book. Thirdly and finally, we need to hear again the mystery because that's our job. And if that's the mission of the church, then the mystery of the gospel must be proclaimed. And for those of you who are, are wondering, okay, all right now, you've made your case. We should be about this business of proclaiming the gospel. What is it? Well, we, we think about, again, what the definition of the mystery is. As Paul says in Colossians 1.25, which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations but has now been revealed to his saints. To them, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. This mystery is Christ as he is given to us in the gospel. 
The mystery is that Christ came down from heaven and became, took on human flesh. And that he lived this perfect life of obedience in this cursed world. And that he, rather than getting up and leaving in the Garden of Gethsemane, rather than getting down from the cross, as the unbearable pain reached him, and particularly as the wrath of a, of a holy God came upon him for the sins of his people, he stayed there. The mystery is this one who was dead, laid in the tomb, utterly cold and gone, rose again the third day. And the greatest mystery of it all is that he did it for sinners like you and I. That's the greatest mystery, I think. That's the part that makes no sense to me. If you have even a clue of how bad you really are, and the word of God makes it very clear that you are that bad, far worse than we often give ourselves credit for. It is a great mystery that anyone would do anything for you at all, much less that the perfect, sinless Son of God would lay down his life for us. But the wonder of this mystery is that it's true. And all that we have to do is to believe it. Really, it's, it's that simple. If you believe that, if you believe that Christ did lay down his life, and he did, he rose again the third day, for our sins, then you're saved. That's the wonder, the mystery of the gospel. If you believe that, you, if you are willing to trust in God's plan and not in your own, I know that we might have our own plans of how we're going to save ourselves. But we've got to lay that aside. You trust in his plan and you're saved. That's what it says in Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It is by grace, not by works. And that is a wonderful and true mystery of God that we proclaim this morning. Let us pray. Lord God, we pray your forgiveness for all the ways that the church has not lived up to his mission. How we have obscured the gospel. How we have turned to other things, other pursuits. But Lord, we are thankful that you make use of weak human beings to declare the mysteries of God. And Lord, we pray that you might be even now bringing in those who are to be saved, those of that symbolic perfect number of all the elect of God that will be brought by the hearing of the gospel. We pray that you grant them the gift of faith. And we pray, Lord, that you grant that we would treasure your word and desire it above all things that, Lord, we would not permit this church to lose sight of the one mission that you've given to her. But rather, Lord, we would be faithful to declare the mysteries of God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.